Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hey friends, this morning we conclude our extremely fun and up and down journey that's been our summer sermon series we've called The Story of God. So if you've been with us all summer, well done, pat yourself on the back, you made it last week here this morning as we conclude things and we look to the last uh, chapter in the story, if you will, where we, we talk about the future. Um, you see, for the last 11 weeks, we've been talking about uh, the things that have happened in the past as we started at the beginning of creation, the creation of time, and then moved to last week, we explored uh, what it looked like when the church exploded and the church, the church was birthed. And so uh, for the past 11 weeks, we've been looking backwards. This morning, this week, we will be looking forward and talk about what will happen in the future. So it's going to be a wild time. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, before we get there, what I want to do is um, give us the framework for the entire story of God, the entire Christian narrative that we've uh, got into thus far. Um, the Christian narrative has classically been broken down into four movements or subchapters, if you will, that you could really span across these 12 uh, more intricate chapters that we have on the screen. So here, here's the Christian narrative. This shouldn't surprise you. You've probably seen this before. Um, th- this is what we go to when we share the gospel message with people. Here it is. The Christian narrative is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the story of God broken down into four movements. It starts at the beginning and answers these significant questions. Creation, where did all of this come from? And what what was it made for? And and the answer of the Christian narrative is um, it all came from God, and we were made for divine love. (laughs) We were made to be loved by God and to love God. Uh, But then... The the Christian narrative tells us what's gone wrong in the world. We look around in the world and things are broken, things are messed up. And and the Christian narrative says, well, what's wrong in the world is sin, the fall. And and so we looked at that. And and then as we move through the Old Testament, uh, as we have through this this sermon series, we see all these types and these shadows that are foreshadowing this moment of redemption, number three, where where we find hope. And, And in the Christian narrative, the place that we find hope is in the good news of the gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done. Um, And the good news is this, Christ eventually comes, God's own son, and by his life, death, and resurrection, God the Father creates a new humanity, the church, who enjoys the full forgiveness of sins, new hearts, and direct, reconnected access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. Redemption, we find hope in Jesus and his work. But that's not it. That's not the full picture. Uh, The full picture moves from redemption and moves into restoration. And and that asks the question, where is history going? And and that's where we're going this morning. We're going to begin to see that God is moving all of history towards something, uh, namely the new creation. It's creation remade, creation renovated. Um, So the the Bible, the Christian narrative begins in the Garden of Eden where there's paradise. And in some ways, ways theologically, uh, the Bible actually ends there as we look towards restoration. We see a a new Eden, a new Jerusalem, a new place where God dwells with his people. So that's where we're going this morning, restoration. And uh, I'm just going to warn you on the front end, uh, this is going to be a lot. This is probably going to feel like a lecture. So if that's not your thing, 
I'm sorry. Uh, come back next week. It's going to be great. Uh, if that is your thing, then I hope you have a pen and a journal maybe to take some notes and uh, you can follow along with us. So this morning we're trying to ask the question, what does it look like? What will restoration look like? What will it look like when, when history moves towards the place that God is moving it towards? So uh, in this, we move to the final book in our Bibles, a confusing book in our Bibles called Revelation. Notice I didn't say Revelations. Right? A single revelation, the book of Revelation. And it's, it's not the only place in our Bibles that give us a picture of what the future will look like, but it is the most significant in density and detail, though it is confusing and complex. And so th- this morning, what I'm going to actually do for us is give us kind of a, a base level overview of the book of Revelation as a whole. I'm going to do my best in like 30 minutes, so give me some grace. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, as is, is confusing and as complex as Revelation can be, uh, maybe if you try to read Revelation on your own, you come to it and you're like, what is going on? I don't understand all of these moves and all of these, these moments and these visions. Um, the fact of the matter is God intended for Revelation to be in his word. God wanted Revelation in his word and he intends for us to go to his word in the book of Revelation to see him and to have him reveal himself to us to see his goodness. So we're going to cover five things this morning. Again, kind of a lecture in some ways. Five things this morning. Number one, the historical context and overview of the book. Number two, we're going to define some key terms, some confusing terms in the book of Revelation. Uh, Number three, really briefly, not going to be extensive or exhaustive, cover different positions. Number four, the sequence of events that happens in the book of Revelation. sorry. And number five, why it all matters. So we got a lot to cover. And I'm going to try to honor you with our time this morning. So first one, historical context and overview of the book of Revelation. If you turn with me to the first page of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, here's the first five verses that we read. It says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, that is, scholars agreed the apostle John, who also wrote a gospel, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. Verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So in in these five verses, we actually see a ton of historical context and an overview for what John is about to write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We see um, primarily two things. I'll talk about those in a second. Um, Here's a quick history lesson. Last week, uh, Kyle explored what it looked like when the church exploded. So, so in 33, 35 AD, most people agree, um, there are 120 Christians globally. So the church is made up of 120 people in 33, 35 AD. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, gives his great commission to these 120 people, his church. That's 30, 33 to 35 AD. In the first three decades of the church, for the most part, uh, there is some pushback and some persecution, but for the, fr- for the most part, there's explosive growth in the first three decades of the church. The gospel goes forth. Uh, the book of Acts constantly says the word went out. God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Um, th- this led to 64 AD, again, 30 years from 33 to 64. Christianity is big enough for Emperor Nero, the emperor of the Roman Empire, to blame the great fire of Rome on Christians. (laughs) 
It goes from 120 to big enough that this great fire that destroys 70% of uh, the center city, um, the emperor of, of Rome blames the fire on Christians. That's how significant Christianity is, how significant the church is. Um, so the first three decades, significant growth. The next three decades, the next 30 years are brutal for the church. In 65 AD, the first governmental wave of persecution against the church comes at the hand of Nero. So for the first time in history, uh, not just religious persecution, but governmental persecution, the Roman Empire persecutes Christians, uh, kills Christians publicly. In 70 AD, maybe the darkest year in church history, Jerusalem is destroyed and burnt to the ground, and Paul, Peter, and Timothy, you recognize those three names? Paul, Peter, and Timothy are all publicly executed in the year 70 AD. Significant year. In 92 AD, the new emperor of Rome, Domitian, ordered all Roman citizens to go into government temples and cry out, Caesar is Lord. Dark times for those who lived by Jesus is Lord. Dark times. So, so that's the context. That's 92 AD. And most scholars agree that these words on the screen were penned around 94, 95 AD. So, so right in that context. So, so two things for us to highlight here, and then we'll move on. The first is this. Revelation is a letter written to a specific people in a specific time. It's a historical document. Is it inspired by God? Yes, but it's a historical document. The Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing these words to these seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. So just like the book of Galatians is written to specific people in a specific time, the Galatians in the first century, the book of Revelation is a letter written to specific people in a specific time, and it's meant to be, in their context, a means of encouragement, comfort, and exhortation for God's people to take heart in the midst of all this suffering and persecution. So why does this matter? This matters because when we come to the Bible and we do biblical interpretation, we need to understand the author's original intent. And this means the text can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. So when people come to the book of Revelation and they get these really strange interpretations and they say that the mark of the beast is the COVID vaccine, no. What, what the text couldn't mean for, the text can't mean for us what it did not mean for them. The, the, the book is for us, but it was not written to us. So that's the first thing. It's a letter written to a specific people in a specific time. Keep in mind the historical context, the suffering, the persecution of the church. And, and number two, two things we see, you see this highlighted again in these, these verses. Uh, revelation is distinct in literary genre. So John says prophecy. It's a prophetic, it's prophetic literature. It's also apocalyptic literature. Um, what, what that means is it's similar to the books uh, of Daniel, Ezekiel, and the Old Testament. Um, apocalyptic prof prophetic literature means there's a ton of imagery. There's a lot of symbolism. Uh, it, it doesn't follow a linear pattern of reading. Um, so in other words, like, stuff gets crazy as you get into Revelation. And it, it's, it's complex. It's hard for us to understand. What's the, what are the swords about? What are the beasts about? Who's the dragon? What's up with these trumpets, these bowls? What's up with this cosmic war going on? There's imagery. There's symbolism happening. We have to keep this in mind, the literary genre, as we seek to interpret and understand what God is communicating through these words. So I'm going to be quick here. Um, I'll just put on the screen. I'm not even going to go through it, but I'll put on the screen just a quick overview of the entire 22 chapters of Revelation. You can break it down this way. Chapters 1 through 3 are broken down. Jesus' message to the churches. 4 through 5 is a vision of God. 
on the throne with a scroll. Uh, see, you, you see the breakdown of nonlinear reading. 6 through 12 and 15 through 16 have the vision of a lamb opening the scroll and then the, the seven sets of judgments. Um, 13 and 14, you see kind of a different break in pattern. The great tribulation, um, 17 through 18, the, the, the fall of Babylon, which is a sign of the corrupt world powers, 19 through 20, significant, the second coming of Christ. And then 21 through 22, the new heavens, the new earth. That's a lot. You could take a picture of that. Um, better yet, I have on the next screen a QR code. You can scan the QR code. And uh, hopefully my head's not in the way. And uh, it, it'll take you to the Bible Project videos. They give an incredible overview, two parts. It's like 20 minutes, pretty extensive, of, of what happens. So you can save that to your YouTube. You can like it. You can add it to your save videos. Um, the reason I'm talking about all this is to ask the question, what's the main point of the book? What's the main point of the book? As we look at the overview of the book, the historical context, what's the main point? And the main point is not that it's a secret prophecy meant to tell us the timetable for Jesus' return. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to be a means of encouragement to God's people who are suffering, who are being persecuted. And it's, it's a means of God speaking to his people saying, take heart for I've overcome the world and I'm going to reign victorious in the end. That's what the book of Revelation is meant to be about. So, quick overview. Second, we move to our second thing. We're gonna define some key terms, some confusing and key terms as you get, get into the book of Revelation. So I'll be fast here. Some of these are a bit confusing, but hopefully it'll be helpful is, is maybe you go to study the book on your own or you try to look into um, other resources. So I'll just throw them on the screen. The first one is eschatology. Eschatology. Okay, we're all going to say it together. Three, two, one. Eschatology. Wow. Wow. It's a big theology word. Nice, nice work. Um, eschatology simply is the study of heaven, hell, and the end of, and the, end of the world. Uh, the future things. The final things to come. It's, it's a subcategory of theology, right? The study of God. Eschatology is the study of the final things, the last things. Um, second one, Millennium. Uh, the millennium we specifically read about in uh, Revelation chapter 20 says that there will be a 1,000-year period of peace before the final judgment. And, and so some interpret that to be literal. Some interpret that to be a figurative reign, a, a figurative 1,000 years uh, reign of Christ before judgment day. Either way, the millennium is a significant uh, kind of term that is referenced in the book of Revelation. Um, third, tribulation, pretty straightforward. That's the period of increased persecution that's going to happen before the second coming of Christ. Jesus himself promises this. He talks about this in Matthew 24, 21 through 27. This is significant because Jesus promises, like he, he, he promises this, that trial, suffering, and persecution will come for his people. And specifically that it will increase before his second coming. And so the, the church followers of Jesus should not be surprised when this happens. Um, third, this, this is where it gets weird, right? It gets, it gets pretty weird. Uh, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You ever read the book of Revelation? You're like, what is going on? Who is the dragon? What's up with these beasts? The false prophet. Uh, again, most scholars agree on this. That they're respective symbols. They're symbolizing uh, Satan, the dragon. Um, human, corrupt, evil kingdoms that are opposing the kingdom of God, the beast. And, and then destructive false teachers, the false prophet. And so, again, they're symbols. It's apocalyptic literature. Uh, and what's interesting, one commentator pointed out, is that throughout Revelation, we see Satan making every attempt to copy whatever God does. 
So uh, this guy talked about the reality that in the three persons of the Trinity, in the Godhead, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, We see Satan counterfeiting that through the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Satan is copying, attempting to copying whatever God does. So symbols. Uh, Going on, the next one, uh, the mark of the beast. Again, contentious. What What does this mean? What is this talking about? Um, this is simply a, a mark on the hand or forehead indicating that you were a servant of the beast. And again, the beast is referencing uh, corrupt human kingdoms. So uh, th- most interpret this to mean not a literal mark, but a copycat of the mark of the Lord in reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see the summation of the law of God. And the summation of the law of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And in Deuteronomy 6, God says something along the lines of, when you do this, it'll be like a mark in between your eyes and a mark on your hand. And the idea was, whatever was in between your eyes was on your mind. That's what drove you. And so this is not a literal mark, but, it, but it's, a, it's a figurative mark um, show, showcasing belonging. In, in other words, you belong to whoever you obey. Your master is who you obey. Um, here's what one... Uh, theologian says about this. Sam Storm says, so when we read that the false prophet causes everyone who isn't a Christian to have the mark of the beast written on their forehead, um, we should understand this is a sign that they belong to the beast and are loyal to him. This mark on their foreheads or on their right hand is simply Satan's way of mimicking the seal of God on God's people. If you have the name of Jesus and God the Father written on your forehead, it simply means that they own you that you belong to them, that you're loyal to the Lord God Almighty. But if you have the name of the beast, again, the quotations, he, he thinks it's a, uh, a figurative mark, written on your forehead, it signifies that he owns you, that you belong to him, that you're loyal to the Antichrist, to those opposing the kingdom of God. So the mark of the beast, not a literal mark probably, but indicating that you're a servant of the beast. Uh, next one, the rapture. Next, next slide, I think. Yeah, the rapture. Uh, the rapture is the idea that living believers are caught up into heaven before the tribulation. So before Jesus' second coming, this idea is that living believers are caught up into heaven before the tribulation. If you're taking notes right next to this, untrue. <laughs> untrue. Um, th- this is an untrue, I think, bad interpretation of First Thessalonians 4. This teaching emerged very late in church history, like in the 19th century, and it was popularized by the, the Western um, American series, the Left Behind books and movies. I'm dating myself a little bit, but 80s and 90s, I remember that as a kid. And the big idea here in the, in the rapture, again, that is completely untrue, um, is the belief that in a specific moment, all living Christians will disappear and immediately be taken to heaven with Jesus in a secret rapture of the church. And this teaches not that Christ will appear, but that Christians will disappear, and therefore that anyone left is not a true believer, and, uh, and all unbelievers who are left on the earth will undergo seven years of tribulations. Again, that, that contradicts what we just saw about the tribulation. The tribulation is actually uh, meant for the church. <laughs> like, Jesus promises the church will experience tribulation. Um, so this is, this is untrue. But I I say this to bring it up. I remember watching one of these movies, like the Left Behind movies as a kid at Sunday school. So I was taught this. And one day I wake up and my mom and my dad and my brother are outside of the house. And and I kid you not, I I remember having the conscious thought, oh no, 
oh no. They, they've been taken to heaven with Jesus and I've been left here. I kid you not. I, I remember a year or two period where I, I lived in so much fear. I lived in so much fear. I had no conception of the gospel of grace. I did not understand what it meant to, to actually be right with Jesus. I was, I was living in fear and thinking, um, I just need to be on God's good side so that when the rapture happens, I don't stay down here with the bad stuff. That, it's, it's fear. And that's not what the Bible teaches. So 1 Thessalonians 4 does not say that believers go to meet Christ in the air and then we go to heaven. It's saying that when Christ comes back, when he descends on the clouds, believers will, will raise, yes, to meet him in the air, but then come back down with him to reign on the earth. That's what the Bible teaches. It's significantly different. So the rapture, untrue. Uh, two more. Intermediate state. This is significant. This is heaven between Jesus' first and second comings. If you died tomorrow, if you died tomorrow and you were in Christ, you would go to the intermediate state. If you have family who's died in Christ as believers, they are in the intermediate state right now. Uh, so the Bible teaches there's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as an unconscious state. Um, if you're in Christ, if you're saved and rescued by him and you die before his second coming, you go to the intermediate state. Jesus looks to the thief on the cross next to him. Three men are dying. The thief on the cross, he repents and believes in Jesus. Jesus says what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Um, the misconception here is, is that this is what most people think about when they think about eternity. This is what most people think about when they think about heaven, this floaty cloud place where we exist only in spirit and it's really ethereal and kind of hard to think about. Um, the Bible teaches this is not our final state. The, the final state is the next one that we'll get to in a moment. Um, the Bible teaches that this is not our final state. Uh, have, you, have you ever heard, I'll ask this, you ever heard the song or the saying, I guess, that goes, um, uh, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through? I don't know if you ever heard that. There's a song I think someone wrote sometime. This, this, earth, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through. Uh, well, there's a theologian named Doug Wilson. He flips that and he says, heaven's not my home, I'm just passing through. <laughs> As he talks about the intermediate state. You see, the intermediate state is a reality until Jesus' second coming. And after his second coming, we move on to the last one, the new heavens and the new earth. This is the final state of mankind in physically resurrected bodies and a radically resurrected creation. This is what we read in Revelation 21 at the beginning of our time this morning. Um, we saw this in verses one through five. Jesus is the first fruits, first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? It means this. The resurrected Jesus had a body. There's a moment in the Gospels where Jesus cooks a meal with Peter on the beach. Resurrected Jesus had an appetite, <laughs> eats food. He still moved around. He had conversations with real people. He did stuff. People touched him. Philippians says that our lowly bodies will be transformed as his resurrected body. So we will be made in the final resurrection like his resurrection body. <laughs> That's what the Bible teaches. Um, so in, in this final state, our physical human bodies are resurrected and perfected. Um, C.S. Lewis, in, in a lot of his work, specifically in his book, The Great Divorce, he talks about the fact that our physical human capabilities and senses will exist without flaw. So touch, taste, smell, those will be even better 
somehow. <laughs> I don't know how it works. We'll have all our capacities to delight in Christ. We won't be ghostly spirits. We'll be more real than we are now. Um, in this, we'll have real lives. We'll have jobs. We'll have relationships. Probably have hobbies and activities. So if you've ever wondered, like, man, it's, it's kind of eternity just going to be me and Jesus singing songs together forever. Maybe I don't like that part of church that much. No, no. <laughs> The final, the final picture is uh, not just standing around singing all day, but enjoying and delighting in Christ and, and, and working and moving and, and having real lives and having jobs and having relationships. Um, finally, last thing I'll say in this, the new heavens and the new earth will exceed the Garden of Eden is what we see. It's not just a return to Eden, but somehow, some way, it's even better. Um, this is the earth being not destroyed, but, but remade, but being renovated. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says the earth is groaning as it awaits its resurrection. So, so not only in Christ are believers raised to a new resurrection in him, but that all of creation, creation as a whole, is resurrected and made new. So key terms. You guys doing okay? Sleeping yet? Cool. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll be quick through the rest of this. I do have a QR code, I think. Another one. Yeah, scan this one. We're going to talk about the, the three primary different eschatological positions. Um, that, should, that should scan you and take you to a web page where you see kind of a chart with primarily three different uh, modes moving there. So what we're going to look at, just this will be real brief, really fast. The, the three primary positions um, centering around interpretations of when Jesus' second coming will be in reference to the millennium that 1,000-year period of peace that we talked about. So when we look at it, we're going to see here in a moment, there's premillennialism, there's postmillennialism, and then there's amillennialism. The idea there is that the, the prefix to that word just indicates when someone believes that Jesus is going to return. So what I have to say on this is that in, in the last 2,000 years of church history, each of these three views falls within the framework of historic Christian orthodoxy. So each of these three views is, is well represented by Bible-believing Orthodox Christians. This should mean, or this, this means for us that uh, if we think we have a, this all figured out, then we should humble ourselves. Because for a long time, people have come to different conclusions, different interpretations on how this will all work itself out. But here are the three. Uh, again, pre-millennialism. This is the belief, pre-millennialism, that Jesus will return before, pre, right, the millennium of, of peace, and he will usher in the millennium himself. So key, key thing to mention on this, in this view, um, the gospel will spread to all nations, disciples will be made, the great commission will be obeyed by Jesus' church, and then Jesus will return. That's what premillennialism teaches. And when Jesus returns, uh, his enemies will be defeated by him. Um, in this view, if, if someone holds the premillennial view, uh, we could be very close to the end, honestly. As you look over uh, at, at, throughout church history, as our missionary efforts continue to send the gospel to the farthest corners of the world, we could be nearing the second coming as the Great Commission uh, it spreads. Uh, the next one, post-millennialism. Again, post, uh, the belief that the church will usher in the millennium of peace, the church will do it, and then Jesus will return after the millennium of peace. So Jesus will come after those 1,000 years. That's what post-millennials believe. Uh, in this view... Uh, good will grow and bad will die out. So it, as the church um, continues to grow, as the gospel will grow and flourish and take, take over the whole world, 
the, the world will be Christianized. That's what post-millennials believe. The entire earth will be Christianized and then there will be 1,000 years of peace because everyone's a Christian on the earth. And that will, be, that will usher in the expansion of the church and then Jesus will return. Um, uh, in this view, we are likely very far from the end. Uh, the, the, the world is certainly more Christian than it was 1,000 years ago, but we have a long way to go. So a, a post-mill, a post-millennial, would probably argue that there will be a day when the church in 2023 is referred to as the early church. <laughs> kind of wild. So that, that's the post-millennial view. And then the final one is amillennialism. That's the belief that the millennium is a figurative symbol for the present reign of Christ. So the idea here is that we're currently in the millennium of peace because it's just a, a figurative thing. And at some point, Jesus will come back to raise the dead for judgment day. Um, some argue that this is a literal reign, but that's just happening in heaven. Either way, this view is much more vague. There's no telling whether Jesus' second coming will be soon or a long time from now. It's pretty vague. It's pretty vague. But again, each of these three views, that's, that's a, you, could, uh, you could do some research yourself, but each of these three views falls within the framework of historic Christian orthodoxy, and each is well represented by Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians. So again, if we think we've got this figured out, we should be humbled we should learn, we should uh, yearn to hold these with open hands. So um, all that being said, uh, we'll, we'll go through the last thing here. We'll talk about the sequence, the, sequ- the sequence of events and how this actually works out. So he, here's what the book of Re- Revelation teaches about the sequence of events. This loosely kind of follows the premillennial position, which, which is probably the most popular and most um, widespread position taken in evangelical the evangelical church today. So here's how the sequence is laid out. Seven things. I'm going to run through these. It's going to be fast. Um, number one, we see the present church age. The present church age, which, which would be what we're in right now. Um, and what the Bible teaches is that the gospel will spread to all nations by means of the Great Commission. Again, final Jesus, uh, command, Jesus' final command to his people. Um, after that, number two, uh, we would see the tribulation. We see this in Revelation 13 through 18. Uh, We see that when the time is near, demonic world powers will rise up and deceive the nations and persecute the church. Uh, That's kind of the second sequence event that would happen. Uh, The third would be the second coming of Jesus. So this would be the moment when Jesus returns in power to destroy his enemies. We see this in Revelation 19, kind of the second half there, and then through uh, chapter 21. Uh, number four, then there would be, again, this is the premillennial view, then there would be the millennium of peace. So Christ would come, then would be the millennium of peace, the 1,000 years of peace where Satan is bound and all dead believers are raised to reign with Christ. That's an interpretation of Revelation 20, one through six. Uh, five, the last battle, it's pretty epic. <laughs> After the millennium, Satan is loosed and wages the final war against Christ. Christ wins victoriously, and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire with his, uh, his, those who are with him in Revelation 27 through 10. Uh, six would be the final judgment. That's when Christ raises all unbelievers and judges all humanity. So all humanity will stand before the judgment throne of Jesus, and all unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire along with Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and death itself. That's chapter 20, 11 through 15. And then in uh, the seventh, the, the, moving into the final state, we have the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus resurrects fallen creation where all believers, after they're judged and declared righteous, enter into the new heaven and new earth forever. It's 21, one through five, what we read. 
So uh, I'm going to have, I'm going to have, uh, hopefully you're able to write that down. If you can't, I can get the notes to you. Um, I'm going to have Daisy take the notes off the screen and just, just ask the question now for the last two, three minutes here. Okay, uh, Ben, that's great. Lots of information. You just threw a lot of stuff at me. But so what? So what? Yeah, we learned about eschatology. So what? Why does that matter? <laughs> um, I was thinking about this this morning and this week, and I was thinking, uh, how does anything that seems like such a distant and, and honestly sometimes like unrealistic future, how does that affect my life today? <laughs> how, how does it affect what I do tomorrow? Um, well, I was thinking about it. Th- think about it this way. This is helpful for me. Um, on the one hand, uh, think about the way that you would read your favorite work of fiction for the second time. You know what I'm saying? So I, lo- I love the Harry Potter series. Second time reading through the Harry Potter series was phenomenal. It was so much fun. Because that time I wasn't wondering, what's going to happen to these characters that I love? The second time I wasn't wondering, what's the author doing here? Is she- Is she going to make it? Is this going to be okay in the end? I wasn't wondering any of those things. Right? As I read it the second time, I was still enjoying the narrative, but I was doing so with a different perspective than I did in the first read because I have the end in view. I have the end in view, right? Um, This is somewhat similar to the Christian life. We're, We're caught up today, right now, in the story of God. We're somewhere there in the middle. But the fact of the matter is, we know where the author is taking things. We know how the story ends. Or rather, we know how the story will go on forever and it's going to be great and good. So we we don't have to wonder how it ends. When we ask the question, will evil triumph or will King Jesus win? No contest. King Jesus wins. So two things for us, I think. Why does this matter? What does this mean for us? Two things. Well, number one, This gives us hope in the face of suffering and questions that we may have. It gives us hope in the face of suffering or questions we may have. In the face of intense suffering, doubt, questions, what can we know for sure? We can know for sure he's coming back to take care of evil forever and to gather his people and to usher in the new creation. (laughs) No matter how bad it gets, think of those first century Christians who were being beheaded for their faith in Jesus. What gave them an anchor of hope? It was that Christ was going to return again and that the worst they could do was kill their body. We might not see how or why God gets there, how the story moves to the end, but in the end, he will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. It gives us significant hope in the face of suffering and questions. And number two, how does this affect us today? Uh, well, number two, this, this beckons us to live in light of forever. A view of the future affects the now because it beckons us to live in light of forever. So, so let me just say this. With all the different positions people take about the interpretations of what's happening in the timeline of, of events in the book of Revelations, here are the two things that all, uh, all Christians everywhere agree upon. Number one, Jesus is coming back. And number two, he will judge. Everyone will face his righteous and holy judgment. Those are the two things that everyone agrees upon. Jesus is coming back and everyone will face his judgment. And based on his judgment, 
either be cast off from his manifest presence forever in hell or invited into paradise and joy with him forever as he ushers in the kingdom in full. The common denominator is that everyone will spend forever somewhere. That's the common denominator. So to the Christian this morning, this should radically affect the way, should radically affect the way that we look at our lives and the way we look at the world. Because we don't spend enough time thinking about forever. Like if you think about a billion years from now, that changes the way you look at someone who doesn't know Jesus. So tomorrow, when you look at your lost coworker in the eyes, tomorrow, when you look your students in the eyes, tomorrow, when you look your classmates in the eyes, tomorrow, when you look your friends in the eyes, tomorrow, when you look your parents in the eyes, anyone who does not know the love of Jesus, think about a billion years from now, and that will change the way you interact with them. It beckons us to live in light of forever. If you're not a Christian this morning, here are my final words. Um, the common misconception around all of this is, okay, Jesus is coming back, God's coming back, whatever, he's gonna judge everyone. So, so good people who have done good things, if their good outweighs their bad, then they're gonna go to the good place when they die. And, and bad people, if their bad outweighs their good maybe, or they've done kind of significant or grievous acts of evil, then they'll go to the, the bad places. That's, that's what the majority of religions teach. Um, the problem is that Christianity says that there's no such thing as a good person. There's, there's no such thing as a good person. All of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us, based on our own works, our own lives, our own performance, deserve hell and separation from the love of God. That is the bad news. When Jesus judges us according to our own standard and what we've done in our lives, it doesn't look good for us. But the good news is that Jesus already came once. And 2,000 years ago when he came for the first time, he didn't come to judge mankind, but to rescue mankind. See, we were in a pit of sin we brought upon ourselves that we couldn't free ourselves from. But Christ came, he so loved us that he climbed into our pit of sin himself. He climbed onto the cross to pay for our sin and to purchase our salvation. What happens when someone trusts Jesus is an exchange. And the exchange is this, my sin goes on to Jesus. He pays it in full on the cross. It's nailed to him. And then in return, Jesus gives me, I'm clothed in his righteousness. So the Christian can stand before Jesus on the judgment day and not say, look, Jesus, at what I've done in my life. No, the Christian stands before Jesus and says, Jesus, you paid it all. You paid it all for me. That's why I can stand before you and be declared righteous. Believe that good news and you'll be safe forever, now and forever. That's the message this morning. Let's pray. We'll respond by singing together. Oh Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you that you are a great author. That God, through this summer, we've been looking at the story that you've been writing from the beginning of time. That in the beginning there was nothing except for you, Lord. And that out of an overflow of your joy, out of an overflow of your love, you spoke and creation happened. And God, in the beginning, you made us to know you and experience your love. You made us to walk with you, 
to reflect you into the world. But God, as we look around, we see that things aren't as they meant, they're, they're, they're meant to be. God, we realize that that is because we turned from you. We rebelled. We chose ourselves over you, Lord. And that fractured the whole of creation. And ever since then, we've been working and working, trying to fix and mend what we've broke. But God, you didn't leave us in that state. No, you sent your own son in the world to live the perfect life that we should have lived, ultimately to die the death that we deserved, to be our ransom. God, we thank you for that. God, that's good news. And God, we know that um, in the midst of that, you've invited us into safe fellowship with you. You've, you've invited us as your people to be called your own. And that, Lord, even though you've, you've covered us, you've paid for the penalty of sin, and you've, you've canceled the power of sin, that we don't have to say yes to the sin's temptation, to its power anymore, we still live in a world with the presence of sin. But one day, Lord, one day your promise is that you'll wipe out its presence forever. God, you'll usher in your kingdom in full. We'll experience the new creation as your people. And God, for us, maybe today, it's, it's strange, it's weird. How does that, what, what does that really look like? Uh, man, that seems like a fairy tale. But Lord, the fact of the matter is, you've been faithful in the past to carry out your purposes in the world. We trust you for the future. So God, would you give us hope as we think about the future that you've promised for your people? And God, will we live today in light of forever, in light of what you're moving towards in history. Lord, anyone here who, uh, who's struggling, who's not sure where they're at with you, Jesus, God, would you be near? God, would you speak? Would you reveal yourself that they might experience your love, experience your grace? God, that you might give them a new heart to know you, to love you, to belong to you. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.